from Psalm 119. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. I have gone astray, astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Well, good morning, friends. If you have a copy of God's Word, meet me in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Well, if you guys have spent any time around kids, there's one phrase that stands out. Mine. (laughs) It seems uh, that a kid's favorite toy is always the one that their sibling or their friend just started playing with. (laughs) Preach it, Kendall. And anyone who's had to settle a squabble among kids who are fighting over a toy has seen the Tenth Commandment broken, the command not to covet. So today we are concluding our Ten Commandments series with that Tenth Commandment not to covet. Remember, God gave us the Ten Commandments to let us know what are the things that set the people of God apart. These are the moral and ethical distinctives that God says, these are my people and this is what you will be like. So what we want to do is see why the command to covet is, or command not to covet, is so important. We are going to, like a gardener who's digging up weeds, we want to get to the root of coveting, what is going on at the deepest heart level. We want to see how the gospel is good news for covetous people like you and me. And we want to see the opposite of coveting, which is contentment, and we also want to see the root at the heart level of contentment. So let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we need you today. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. May I speak truly, wisely, and clearly for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. God's word says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, to covet is to desire excessively something that someone else owns. This is not just 
seeing something that your neighbor has and saying, that'd be nice to have something like that. This is desire to the point of obsession. This is desire to the point that you become discontent and unhappy with what God has given you. And coveting has a twin brother, envy. Uh, They are very similar. When you look up what the words mean, coveting is more focused on the thing that the person has that's desired. Envy is more focused on the on the person who has, that owns the thing. But they are almost exactly the same, and they are both forbidden in Scripture. It is clear that the people of God are to neither covet nor envy. So I'm going to use them interchangeably this morning. And they have the same heart root issue. What are those heart root issues? When we look at this passage, we see the command is not limited to any one area or desire. It talks about marriage and romance and family and coveting someone else's spouse. It mentions possessions. Uh, A donkey would be the equivalent of a vehicle today. Other farm animals that are mentioned will be used for work on the farm. So it's similar to coveting someone else's job. And servants would only be available to the wealthy. So to covet their servant would be to covet their wealth. This is a comprehensive command. And the implication is it is not limited only to the things mentioned explicitly in the command. The scriptures are clear. We are not to covet or envy at all. And Jesus points out in the book of Mark where coveting comes from. Look with me on the screen at Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. And he, Jesus, said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, while our culture says that things like coveting and envy and sins like that come from our surroundings and our environment, the Bible is clear. These things come from the desires of our heart. These sins come from within us. And that makes sense because coveting is at its very core a desire. It stems from idolatrous desires. We want something that someone else has. We see someone who might have more money than us, and we covet their wealth. We see someone else's spouse, and we want that love and attention, so we covet. We desire to be attractive and fun and thought well of by others, so when we see our friend's Instagram post, we covet their life. Coveting is not due to our environment, our parents, or our socioeconomic status. We covet because of our desires. And these things aren't bad in and of themselves. It's not bad to desire to be loved or desire wealth. The problem, as we've talked about many times, is when those desires climb to the throne of our hearts. We've used the throne diagram in the past 
to describe how Jesus is to be the king of our hearts, he and he alone should be on that throne. And the problem is when other desires supplant him on that throne, instead of using the blessings that God has given us to magnify Jesus, we start using Jesus to get our idols and disregarding what he says if, he st- if his word stands in the way of our idols. And that is the motivation of envy. Because if something else is on the throne of our heart, we will disregard what the Bible says about coveting in order to get our idol, to get the thing that we covet. Jesus becomes a means, not the ends. And that's why coveting, like a warning light on the dashboard of our hearts, is a sure sign of idolatry. Coveting indicates that we do not love God as we ought, and we do not love our neighbor. We love our neighbor's stuff. We want their money, their job, their looks, their popularity. So the question is, what do you and I covet of others? What's the thing that other people have that you want? What's the thing that when we see others have that we do not have makes us angry? The answer to those questions will lead us to what is on the throne of our hearts. But the heart is more than just our desires. And coveting is rooted in more than just desires as well. It's also rooted in believing lies. We believe things that aren't true about God. We believe things that aren't true about our neighbor. And this combines with our sinful desires to intensify coveting. For example, let's look at Psalm 37 verses 1 and 2. Psalm 37 verses 1 and 2 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The psalmist is addressing someone. If you read throughout the psalm, the context is those who prosper in their way but don't honor God. Those who are wealthy or powerful through ungodly means. And when we see them, and it looks like they're winning the game of life, and we follow Jesus, and we don't have the power or wealth or status that they have, it can be tempting to think, well, if they're winning the game of life, maybe I should play the way they play. Maybe it's better to kind of change the results of that report at work so it looks, my stats look better. I can keep up with my coworkers. Maybe it's better to disregard gathering together with our church to work more and impress my boss. Maybe even to bend the truth a little on my taxes. But the psalmist points out that this perspective is rooted in a lie. In verse 2, he points out the wicked are going to fade. If the Lord tarries, every single person is going to die. Every single one of us. And if the Lord tarries, that means that when we die, every single person, rich or poor, will stand before the throne of God and have to account for their lives. 
And at that time, true wealth will not be found in riches or silver or gold, but in the precious blood of Christ that flowed from Calvary. The Bible says that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Those who are in him will spend eternity in beautiful union with the God of the universe. And the wicked? The Bible is clear that their wealth, their stuff, their status will be no more. And they will spend eternity separated from God. When we see the truth, when we see the world through God's eyes, who is really the wealthy one and who is really poor? Do you see how lies in our heart can lead us to coveting? Now, what lies do we face day to day? Well, there's lots that we could talk about, but one that's very prominent is that if I only had this thing, then I would be happy. Or if I only had more of what I already have, then I'd finally be satisfied. We hear this lie all the time. This is the number one thing that advertising tries to convince us of. If we only had a bigger truck or trendier clothes or the newest iPhone that folds in half and does virtual reality and flies, I I don't know, I'm not that techie. If we only had that thing, then we'd be finally happy. There's even commercials that feature Uh, One person with an inferior product envying someone with a superior product, their product, and encouraging that envy. And that's all well and good until the next year's model truck comes out. Or what's fashionable this season becomes unfashionable and passe next season or an even newer iPhone comes out that makes the old one obsolete. In fact, if the commercials are right, that we'll only be happy if we have the newest, latest, greatest thing, why are there always more commercials? It doesn't work. It will never satisfy. It's a lie. Social media can also tell us untruth. Facebook and Instagram convince us that other people's families or lives are perfect or that their friends are more fun, that their lives are more adventurous and interesting. And in comparison, we feel inferior, and so when we see their post, we envy them. So we take pictures of our cute kids or us doing something interesting in the hopes that other people will think well of us. But in our heart of hearts, don't we know it's fake? The vacation is never as good as the golden hour picture that they posted. Like, they can, we can post a picture of our family perfectly smiling and happy at Disney World, but we know at the end of the day that after that picture was taken, they spent 10 hours in line at Space Mountain in the 95-degree heat and 100-degree humidity. We can see a perfect picture of someone's kids, but at the end of the day, we know that the 10 minutes before and 10 minutes after were spent chasing those same kids up and down and around the house because that's what little kids do. 
Their family has issues just like every other family. That other person has challenges just like every other person does. And odds are they're looking at posts, maybe even our post, and feeling the same insecurity that you and I are feeling when we see theirs. The truth is, our idols always disappoint. They have a 100% failure rate. The new gadget, the insta-perfect family, the new house will never satisfy because we were built for a relationship with the perfect, infinite God of the universe through Christ. Nothing else will do. And when we try to fill that void with idols, we convince ourselves that if we only had the thing that our buddy had, then we'll finally be happy. It will never work. It is a lie. So we see how believing lies and idols being on the throne of our heart create this petri dish that breeds discontent and thus coveting and envy. And you might hear this and think, well, Jimmy, okay, I see where it comes from, but what's the big deal? No one can see if I'm coveting. We've spent the last two months talking about murder and stealing and adultery. Is coveting really a big deal? Well, first of all, coveting is an expression of distrust in God. It's saying that what God has given us is not sufficient, not good enough. And the height of all sin is the disrespect of God. But envy is also dangerous. And envy is ugly. The New Testament often groups envy with other sins like murder deceit, slander, and sexual immorality. Jesus and the apostles are saying throughout the New Testament that the same root heart issues that are apparent in envy and coveting are true in those more serious sins, quote-unquote, as well. So as an example, let's look at a classic good guy in the Bible, King David. One day, David's on the roof of his house. Problem is, he shouldn't have been on the roof of his house. His guys are in the field fighting a war. But he's back at home with his feet kicked up, living the life of luxury. He's on the roof of his house, and he sees a woman bathing, and he finds her beautiful. So he goes to his advisor, and he says, who is that? And they say, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, there are three strikes here. Three reasons, huge reasons, why David should just stop this right here. First, like we said, he shouldn't even be there. Second, he's married. Third, he just found out that this woman is married to Uriah, who not only is she married, she's married to one of his most faithful men. That should stop this right there. But this is why coveting and this is why letting idols on the thrones of our hearts is so dangerous if left unchecked. When something besides God is on the throne of our hearts, we disregard what God says to get what we want. That's exactly what David does. He sends messengers to Bathsheba's house. And the text says, and I want to say these exact words that the text says, he took her and slept with her. 
Remember, this is the king. Even if Bathsheba had no desire to sleep with David, this man is very powerful. It would be very difficult for her to say no. So Bathsheba returns home, and David thinks that's the end of that. Until sometime later, she sends word to him, I'm pregnant. Remember, her husband's fighting David's battle in the field. He's not home. There's only one man who could be the father. David's realizing that his lust has consequences, that his coveting has consequences. So he sends for Uriah to come home from the field, and after he wines and dines him and they chat for a while, he says, go home, wash your feet. The implication is, go home, sleep with your wife. David's looking for plausible deniability. But Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps outside the door of David's house. And when David asks him why he doesn't go home, he says, wait, so the guys are all fighting, camping in tents, away from home, and risking their lives. And you want me to go home and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? By no means. Burn. Because not only did David sleep with this man's wife, he wasn't in the field. Uriah is being honorable even when David clearly had not. David even tries again. He tries to get Uriah drunk and send him home again. Doesn't work again. So Uriah returns to the battle. But now David's in too deep. He writes a letter to the commander of his army, and he writes a letter saying, send Uriah to the height of the battle. And then when the battle is at its peak, have them fall back, leaving Uriah isolated against the enemy. It's a death sentence. The commander follows David's orders, and Uriah is killed in battle. And Bathsheba wept. Actually, the text, the, the divinely inspired writer of this text doesn't say Bathsheba wept. He said, the wife of Uriah wept. One more reminder. This man, this woman was not David's wife. And after she mourned, she became one of David's wives. David probably thinks problem solved. Beloved, do you see why addressing heart issues like coveting is such a big deal? If a man like David, a man who earlier in his life God described as a man after his own heart, can do this, what makes you think that you and I are any different? We face many similar temptations. We know that infidelity and divorce is super common in our culture. While we may not murder, we've talked in this series about how anger and slander are equivalent on the heart level to murder. We know also that statistics show rape is probably underreported in our culture. 
we face many of the same challenges as David, even if we're not as rich and powerful. That's why it's so important. Do not let your idols fester. As John Owen once said, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We must nip these sins in the bud. But God, in his justice and his graciousness, was kind to David. Kinder than David deserved. He sent a prophet to David, and the prophet called David out. And in that moment, David realizes his sin and asks God for forgiveness. Now, in hearing that, you and I might think that David is beyond forgiveness. But this is the beauty and the scandal of the gospel. The gospel is not only for small-time sinners, because there are no small-time sinners. We've seen, we just talked about how coveting and murder and envy are deep, these heart issues that we all deal with. Every single one of us is just as guilty in the eyes of the Lord as David was. When the prophet confronted David, he asked David, why did you despise the Lord and his commands? When we covet, we disregard Exodus 20:17. We despise, I said disregard, I meant why did he despise God and despise God's word? When we disregard Exodus 20:17 and covet, despite what we know to be true, we despise God in our hearts by saying he is not good and his word is not good. But beloved, the gospel is good news for vile sinners like you and me. David writes a psalm of repentance, Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, David describes his godly grief. He actually says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Not minimizing what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah, but pointing out that the ultimate offense was against the one who knit Uriah and Bathsheba together in their mother's wombs. Who loved and cared for Uriah and Bathsheba who sovereignly brought them together as husband and wife, and before whom they made a covenant of marriage. The ultimate offense, the ultimate offense for all of our sins is against our creator and the one who loved us and gave us everything, and yet we covet and say it's not enough. Listen to what David asked of God. In Psalm 51, beginning in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
and uphold me with a willing spirit. You and I might think David's case is hopeless. How can David not be cast out from God's presence? How could his iniquities possibly be blotted out? I mean, God is just. He loves and cares for the vulnerable. He cared for Uriah and Bathsheba. Justice must be done. How is this possible? Through the cross of Christ, it is possible. See, David was a king who in the moment of trial abandoned the battle and chose comfort over sacrifice. Jesus is a king who in the moment of trial took up the ultimate battle against the ultimate enemy and chose sacrifice over comfort. On the cross, Jesus took on the penalty for the vilest sins, sins that he did not commit, and he took on a punishment that you and I deserve. Out of love, he died the death that you and I and David deserved. But he did not remain in the grave, beloved. On the third day, he rose from the dead and later ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that if you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ, we, he will purge us with hyssop and make us clean. Our sins will be blotted out. He will create in us a clean heart and a right spirit. He will give us his Holy Spirit and he will save us. Not because of what we have done, but to the praise of his glory and his overflowing love. So for those of us who are in Christ, how are we to fight covetousness? How are we who are through the gospel, brought out of death and into life, how are we to fight for righteousness? Well, we saw that covetousness is rooted in discontent, rooted in those sinful, idolatrous desires and in lies. But the opposite of that is contentment, contentment of what God has given us. In the same way that discontent, covetousness, and envy are rooted in lies and and idolatrous desires, contentment is rooted in gospel beliefs and gospel desires. For example, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Paul is warning Timothy about those who are dividing uh, the church that Timothy is pastoring by teaching false things. And they're not teaching false things for pure motives, but they are teaching false things for their own ego and gain, financial gain. And Paul warns specifically that one of the sins that this produces is envy. But look what Paul recommends to Timothy as a solution. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul says the solution in finding godliness with contentment is addressing lies with gospel truth. He says godliness of contentment is great gain. Why? Because we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. He says his heart, he addresses his heart issue with a truth that confronts a lie. The lie is the same one we looked at in Psalm 37. That those who get ahead by sinful means will prosper forever and the status quo will never change. Paul makes clear, again, we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything that we gain in this world out. Part of contentment is having our minds transformed. What Romans 12 says is the renewing of our minds. That when we go to the Bible, we have our beliefs challenged and changed by what we read. We must learn to think how God thinks. In this case, which means believing the truth that worldly wealth comes to an end. And there are things which are eternal. And then Paul points out that we are to have desire these things that are eternal, that we are to have new gospel desires that replace our idolatrous desires. He says that in verses 8 through 11, that what we saw in the story of King David is true, that wicked desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. And he gives us new pursuits. He's calling us to run into the arms of Christ and pursue him and things that reflect his glory. To pursue righteousness means that when our boss praises our coworker for their performance and we fall, feel like we're falling behind and you're tempted to inflate your stats or be dishonorable in order to impress your boss, we choose honesty. Because Christ has declared us righteous in him. And living with integrity reflects the new reborn person that we really are. Godliness means that when another friend reaches that next life stage, whether that be kids or grandkids, or getting married or retiring, and we're not quite there yet, we choose to be gracious and kind not just in a be-nice-to-their-face, talk-bad-behind-their-back way, but in a genuine way. Because Christ is on the throne of our hearts, and we can be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing because our joy is in his joy. Pursuing faith means that we believe that those who are rich and powerful will face judgment before the throne of God, just like everyone else. And the status quo eventually will reflect 
God and his kingdom. Pursuing love means that when we choose to sacrifice to demonstrate, pursuing love means that we choose to sacrifice to demonstrate Christ to those same people. When they're wealthy and powerful, and even if they are our enemies, because Christ loved us and was merciful to us. Pursuing steadfastness means that we invest our energies and our thoughts and our imagination into loving our spouses well and not into sinful fantasies. Pursuing gentleness means that we love and shepherd our children with kindness and not with anxiety-fueled harshness because we're concerned about what others think of us. And this is not just a check the box. Paul calls us to pursue these things. In the same way that coveting is fueled by this obsession with what someone else owns, to pursue means to run after something, to invest time, resources, imagination, mental energy into desiring these things. What are the things that you and I pursue in our minds? What do you spend your time focusing on? Let us pursue these gospel desires and believe these gospel truths. Let us reject covetousness and envy and see contentment as pure and sweet because the Savior they reflect is sweet and beautiful. And maybe you're here and you're not a believer. Jesus hasn't been part of your story And your story reflects that you're still living for some of those idols that never will satisfy. Repent. Turn away from your idols and turn to Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness because there is no sin too small for him to not need to forgive. And there is no sin too big for him to forgive. If that's something you sense the Lord laying on your heart this morning, feel free to talk to me or Josh or anyone you see on stage after service. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what next steps could look like. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, you are kind. You are good and you are merciful. We pray that your word changes our hearts, that we would repent. I repent of desiring sinful desires and believing false truths. We are thankful for your gospel, which is kinder than we deserve. And we ask that you transform our hearts to desire truth and gospel desires. We pray this in your name. Amen.